Hello all, my name is Sheila Ramjig and I'm the outgoing Early Career Member Representative of the ERS Monograph Editorial Board. I'm a consultant pulmonologist with an interest in interstitial lung and pulmonary vascular disease. Now, as this is the last podcast which I'll be recording, it is very fitting that this edition of the monograph is dedicated to a topic which is close to my heart, and that is that of sarcoidosis. Now, this monograph will appeal as much to the generalists as well as the specialists. Poaching a phrase used by the guest editors, sarcoidosis really is a clinical chameleon, and it can manifest itself in many ways, depending on which organs are involved. Now, this monograph helpfully provides us with a comprehensive update of all aspects relating to sarcoidosis, given that the last monograph dedicated to this area was back in 2005. We're joined today by two of the guest editors, Francesca Bonello and Daniel Culver, who were both part of the group who produced the ERS Clinical Practice Guidelines on the Treatment of Sarcoidosis. Francesca is the head of the division for the interstitial and rare lung disease at the University Hospital in Essen. He is also an active member of the ERN lung and WASOG community. Daniel, obviously, is president of WASOG and is head of the Department of Pulmonary Medicine in the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. So hello both. Hello to you. Hello. Now, I'm really curious as to why both of you have such an interest in sarcoidosis. Francesco, maybe you could start. As I was a student uh, in medicine, I was totally fascinated by this uh, mysterious and very chameleonic disease with several manifestations and unclear etiology and pathogenesis. And then I had the luck to deepen aspects of this disease under the guidance of Professor Costabel at the Ruhrland Clinic in Essen over the years and had the possibility to follow many, many patients over years and then better understand how to manage them and uh, how this disease uh, works. There is always something uh, new and something else to learn and it's never boring. So true. I also uh, rather serendipitously fell into sarcoidosis. I recall as a medical student uh, being unsatisfied with consultant rotations that focused only on one organ. In sarcoidosis, you have to truly be an internist and think about the entire patient. So that resonated with me, but my first passion was ARDS. It just so happened that our institution received a large grant to start a sarcoidosis center That grant was funded by the U.S. government because a congressperson managed to requisition some funding in a spending bill one year, and they steered it right to our district. So we had a serendipitous beginning of a sarcoidosis center, and uh, my senior mentor, Manny Kavuru, approached me in the hallway one day and steered me out of ARDS and into sarcoidosis, and it's been fast forward ever since then. Dan, just remind us again, what's the term used for that funding that gets put in? So the funding that gets put in in the U.S. Congress is called pork, (laughs) and that could be used for a bridge, a school, a highway project, a sarcoidosis center of excellence, what have you. And of course, uh, the local constituents are quite happy to have that pork coming home. Absolutely. And does it stand for anything? I'm just curious now, does it or is it just always be known as pork? I suppose we could come up with some creative acronyms. Absolutely. (laughs) So I was moving away from that, but thank you for the education there. 
why is this edition of the monograph so important? Why did you two put your heads together with your other authors to, to say we need to produce this edition? I think in the last 16, 17 years, there have been major advances in sarcoidosis, in understanding disease pathogenesis, etiology, genetic aspects. But also now we have two guidelines. So one guideline by the ATS on sarcoidosis diagnosis and the other one by the ERS on treatment. So I think we have enough stuff to uh, write a new monograph. This was the initial idea in summer 2020. And then I involved uh, Dan and, and Dominique, Israel BA, uh, to, to work with me to, to follow this project. And Dan, was, was your motivation much the same as well? Or were there other, any other aspects? I think this was a great idea. And if you look through the content, I think it's obvious that there's a lot of highly useful information that needed to be captured in one place. One other thing that I think has evolved quite a bit over the past 20 years or so is that many specialties are now highly interested in sarcoidosis. This used to be primarily the provenance of, of the pneumonologists or respirologists or pulmonologists, depending on what country you're in. And now really cardiologists, dermatologists, ophthalmologists, all of these groups have their own working groups and statements and committees on sarcoidosis. And you can see at the meetings for those particular specialties, neurology, I forgot, several others, that there are sessions dedicated to sarcoidosis. So this has truly become a multi-specialty disease process. And as you look through the monograph, you can see that specialists from various walks of life are involved in there. And I think that's only good for patients and for science. As a pulmonologist looking after people with sarcoid disease, do both of you think there are areas that we frequently overlook that we should be considering? Are there certain manifestations that pulmonologists underdiagnose, I suppose, is what I'm asking? In my opinion, of course, the extrapulmonary manifestations are difficult. So sometimes we totally forget to look at the skin of our patients or to proactively ask for uh, eye involvement, for example. So I think this is one of the major motivations uh, of this monograph to involve several specialties. Uh, in order to provide the broadest overlook of the manifestations of sarcoidosis. So, so I think it's important to remember uh, not only to check lung function tests or to do the necessary stuff to confirm diagnosis, but also really to look at every kind of manifestations and to ask for symptoms also over time, not only at time of diagnosis. So. And I think that... Uh... The, the pulmonologist still in most centers serves an extremely vital central role in the diagnosis and management of the patient. And this is the person who generally is asked to look at the patient as a whole, as a generalist, and to combine information from various organs towards the management of patients. Patients don't come in the door with a label saying, my transaminitis is from sarcoidosis but my dyspnea is from deconditioning. So it's our job to distinguish which symptoms are from granulomatous inflammation, which symptoms are from consequences of therapy, which symptoms are from parasarcoidosis, and which symptoms have nothing to do with sarcoidosis. 
And uh, this book really gives people a lot of useful information to make those distinctions. Uh, yes, I j just really want to stress this point. So Daniel said that, that uh, he has the impression that the patients come back to pneumologists at the end of the day, just to integrate all the information, all the new examinations they did with other specialists. And that's also my experience. So uh, at the end of the day, all these patients also when they have only uh, neurological symptoms or skin manifestation, but anyway, they come back to pneumologists just to, I don't know, have the impression that one person is able to manage all these aspects or has the control on all these aspects. This, that's very important as well as the single entry point for a sarcoidosis reference center. So the patients have the impression there is a pathway for them very well codified and they can rely on this. You almost feel like a conductor, I feel sometimes. And I, I was curious, in the field of sarcoidosis, what do you both feel has been the biggest advancements in the last 10, 15 years? I feel optimistic about the entire field right now, much more optimistic than I did a decade ago. I think our understanding of pathophysiology, our multinational, multicenter collaborations, multi-specialty collaborations between immunology and genetics and pathology and, and other kinds of specialists, clinicians, all of these things have led to, I think, very important advances in understanding the pathophysiology. And I think you can see that in emerging treatment trials. There are real actual treatments for sarcoidosis in study right now, in investigation right now. And we're getting out of that old tired steroids first mindset that we've had for the last 70 years. And I think that this is going to ultimately lead to better outcomes and certainly less toxicity. So I feel really good about where things are going right now. And I, I think that part of what this monograph reflects and what we try to promote in organizations like Wausau really is this transnational multidisciplinary collaboration, which is something that you have to actively work to facilitate. And, and you can see it in the advances that are happening. Yes, my opinion, if you open the monograph, of course, there are evident aspects or more visible aspects of uh, the re most recent advances like uh, imaging biomarkers, for example, or advances in, in genetic and phenotypization of patients. Uh, they are, of course, more evident than advances, for example, in uh, quality of life research on patients and so on. But I think all these aspects now shows us that there is a lot of interest about this disease, a lot of also investments, and the future looks much better than one decade ago. So I totally agree with Dan and this aspect and this consideration. Yeah. I certainly see it in terms of steroid prescribing in our group. And I don't know if this is because of the pandemic, but certainly more recently, and this is a slightly morbid topic, but I feel that more of our sarcoid patients have possibly died than they may have done perhaps a decade or two ago. And I don't know if that's because we are diagnosing sarcoidosis in a better fashion or people are presenting to us later because they've been tolerating the symptoms. I wondered what your thoughts were with regards to this. I think it's sometimes hard to know what the mortality is. Obviously, there are some epidemiologic studies uh, in the U.S., 
that suggest rising mortality over the last couple of decades. I've always believed that a lot of that is ascertainment or finding sarcoidosis. I think a, a huge change is cardiac, right? Mm-hmm. All those patients that we used to have during training and we just said, oh, I guess a virus got you, right? Those are all now cardiac sarcoidosis or a lot of them are after the imaging is done. So I think sarcoidosis gets written on death certificates a lot more than it used to. And that may be part of what we're seeing. It is a little sobering to think that we've brought on all these medicines, TNF antagonists and methotrexate and whatnot, and we don't see the needle moving in the right direction quite yet. Absolutely. And I think being married to a cardiologist, it, I, I, I have quite easy access to get those MRs. And, and I think that's certainly beneficial to the patients that we see having that collaborative work. And the cardiologists are really on board, I think, certainly where I work, which is really beneficial to our patients. So sort of moving away ever so slightly, I was very curious. And this is where sometimes you, you have to be careful what you say because you don't want to annoy your co-authors here. Do you have any chapters, if you had half an hour, 30 minutes to pick up the monograph, are there any chapters that you would say are a definite read, a must read? Okay, I, I probably biased on that because uh, I was the, the, the chair of the rare DPLDs group in the ERS uh, for, for <laughs> many years. So for me, the, the chapter on rare manifestations of sarcoidosis is, is important because it's like a collection of curiosities, you know, and, and, and the rarities. So in German, we say the Wunderkammer, where you can find every, uh, every kind of of a rare aspect of the disease and and then it's also fascinating to see how broad can be the involvement of of the organs by sarcoidosis there are also in this chapter the author is mark judson a guy with a great experience in, in sarcoidosis of course and there is also research in this field of rare manifestations it's not like a list just like a list of aspects of sarcoidosis but also there are some indications for a better diagnosis a timely diagnosis and also for the management of these manifestations so if we think to bone sarcoidosis or for example, hematological manifestations, which are very difficult to identify. And the second one is the chapter on skin manifestations, because I like very much the pictures. They are amazing. (laughs) Me too. I love that chapter. It was fantastic to have them all in one place. Sorry. (laughs) And Dan? I'm going to uh, point to three chapters that all clump together which is an interest of mine. And I, I, I just think that it's overlooked because people think it's easy to make a diagnosis, find a granuloma and you're done. But there's a very nice chapter by Rocco Trisolini and, and several other authors. And then a chapter on the imaging and the chapter on the pathology. And you realize as you look through those that uh, there are nuances, there are clues, there are subtle tricks having a multidisciplinary meeting for ILD every week where we go through difficult cases. I've had the opportunity to see a lot of mimickers and a lot of challenging versions of sarcoidosis. And and you realize that diagnosing it is not always straightforward. And especially in tertiary centers where some of these difficult cases come, the clues that are in those three diagnostic chapters, I think are really, really helpful. And I would encourage somebody to take a look at those really under 
appreciated piece is really looking at the pathology slides with your pathologist. Of course, with TBNA nowadays, sometimes we don't get pathology, but in challenging cases, this is still a consideration. And I think looking at those slides with your pathologist is really, really important. No, absolutely. And I think one area, because we work very closely with our occupational lung disease physicians as well, is silicosis or sarcoidosis. And it can be so challenging. And you're absolutely right to have a good pathologist on side and and having access to good samples makes all the difference. And I suppose thinking about how we all work together and in collaboration with other specialties now, I was curious as to your thoughts about the future of sarcoid disease. What would you hope to see five, 10 years from now? Of course, there are several AMET needs in in sarcoidosis. We don't have any approved medication for sarcoidosis, and this is the first one. So we have to work intensively on this aim in the future to to get the first approved drug for this disease and the second unmet need is the interdisciplinarity so that means we have excellence centers worldwide coordinated mostly by wasoc so thank to wasoc for this huge effort in making it possible to have defined identified excellence centers this is crucial for for patient's care, but it's not enough. We have to extend this network also to satellite centers because not all the patients have the possibility to reach the the, the excellent centers of sarcoidosis. And of course, increase awareness of this disease. So through social media activities and then create also, I think, federations of patients foundations in every continent let's say because the situation we face now in europe and in us is quite good and and promising for the future but there are continents where sarcoidosis is still misdiagnosed and neglected i would say you're ambitious francesco i was just going for a cure (laughs) (laughs) i was feeling very inspired by the way Francesco, honestly, I I need you to come over here. (laughs) uh, Do you think the pandemic has helped at all? And I mean helped rather than hindered in terms of helping with patient care, growing of satellite centres, given the use of kind of virtual consultations or or not really? You don't think the, the pandemic has had an effect? I'm just curious, just throwing that question out there. There's a theory in evolution called punctuated equilibrium which is that evolution doesn't just go along in a nice gradual scale. It goes along a little bit, and then there are big tectonic shifts. And I do think that some aspects of healthcare are in this punctuated equilibrium phase right now. Virtual or asynchronous care is part of it. I also think that ways uh, that we think about measuring value will be part of this as well. But I think by and large, For the things that I really think are important to advancing sarcoidosis care, which is primarily the science, I I think COVID has been a detour and uh, perhaps has uh, drawn away some resources and time and money from advances in sarcoidosis. We'll get back on track, but overall, I'm not a fan of the pandemic, frankly. Who is a fan of the pandemic? I don't think anyone is. <laughs> I miss my patients face to face. No, but of course, uh, that's true. There, there were major advances in telemedicine. If you look at 
some posters and publication from the last two years, you, you can really see that, that there were uh, advances in, in providing tools for patients to, to give a feedback about symptoms or response to treatments. So we know Marlis Wiesenbeck worked a lot in the field, for example, and she presented some, some exciting results at the ATS Congress and US Congress last year. So I think like during wars, uh, there are major advances also in science due to the concentration and investment of energies and attention for the disease. But of course, from all other aspects, it's not possible to justify <laughs> these uh, exceptions yeah, for, for making good research. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Do you two have anything else you'd like to add about the monograph? One of the things I'd like to highlight in the monograph, which I think was a unique aspect and it has been really fun to watch is the transnational and especially transcontinental collaborations. If you look through the table of contents, almost every chapter has an author from several different locations and quite often uh, several from Europe and North America in the same chapters. And we've already seen payouts from that. There's a session at ATS already this year with Divya Patel and one of the authors from Erasmus, they'll be presenting together. We've seen other authors starting to work together. So again, something like this is not just a set of chapters, it's actually a platform or an opportunity to grow the field, to get new people in and to develop new relationships. And if I may add something, uh, also a very good platform to provide updates on this disease in a shorter time than in the past. Yes, I think 15 or 16 years for an update was a little bit too long for this disease, which is rapidly evolving. I think any junior person or senior person for that matter, who wants to have a one-stop shopping to learn about sarcoidosis enough to really have a good sense of the disease and how to manage it and how to diagnose it, would be hard pressed to find a better place to go than this monograph. This really incorporates all of the cutting edge thinking across many, or if not all of the relevant aspects of the disease. So this is, I think, a, a really nice set of papers. It'll be helpful. Yes, and last but not least, uh, the voice of patients. This was a very important news compared to the first monograph. And also a signal for the future, for the integration of patients in every aspect of research and care true personalized medicine mm. absolutely again i would like to thank our guest editors and the whole ers monograph publication team for their dedication and supreme passion for producing such a useful updated edition of the monograph i would encourage not only established interstitial lung disease clinicians and scientists to read this edition but also other pulmonologists and generalists as sarcoidosis really can have a myriad of clinical manifestations. We hope you enjoy reading and listening. And finally, good luck to Holly Kerr, who will be taking over the podcast. Take care for now.